Hello and welcome to Built for Earth, where we are spotlighting experts and innovators taking on climate change. My name is Sam Beskin, and our guest joining the show is Dr. Laura Lammers, founder and CEO of Travertine Technologies. Travertine captures and permanently sequesters atmospheric carbon dioxide through mineralization while simultaneously upcycling sulfuric waste for sustainable chemical production. Dr. Lammers has dedicated a significant portion of her career to leading-edge academic environmental research, including her most recent role as a professor at UC Berkeley, where she headed a laboratory focused on carbon mineralization. In early 2022, she took the leap and launched Travertine with a vision to scale the company to achieve gigatons of carbon removal. What's even more remarkable is she does this all while juggling being a devoted mother of three. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lammers. Thank you so much, Sam. I'm delighted to be here. Well, great. Diving in, the first thing I want to start with is there's really two sides of Travertine's business, carbon removal and chemical production. And so when the company was nothing more than an idea, did you start by wanting to sequester carbon or wanting to clean up chemical production? And how did these two distinct ideas come together? That's a great question, Sam. So I would say that I've spent the majority of my academic career trying to think about ways to sequester carbon. So as a PhD student at UC Berkeley, I was part of one of the first research consortia on subsurface geologic carbon sequestration. That's what got me on the track of studying carbonate precipitation, because that's the way that Earth sequesters carbon on geologic time scales. So this is you know, always a thought in the background. My lab is always growing carbonates. And then what actually catalyzed the idea for the travertine process was a conversation with the mining company and learning about the production of waste in the extractive industries. And so kind of the notion of taking a sulfate waste and recycling chemicals and then using the base that comes out of that to sequester CO2 just kind of set off the light bulb. And I just happened to be on a walk at the time holding my my newly born infant third child. So so bring those babies into the picture too. But, um, but yeah, so I, I would say that it's both, but really the inspiration came from this notion that we could kill two birds with one stone. Really. That's amazing. And Travertine's platform is powered by a process called water electrolysis. Can you describe how this fundamentally works? Absolutely. So water electrolysis is basically using electricity to split a water molecule. And so it allows chemistry to happen that would otherwise not be chemically spontaneous. And so in an electrochemical cell, the type of cells that we use, we have cathode and anode. On the cathode, we're reducing water, basically adding electrons to water to make hydrogen molecules. And at the anode, we're taking electrons out, oxidizing water to make oxygen and acid. Got it. And my understanding is that this water electrolysis takes a lot of electricity. Can you talk concretely about how much electricity it requires and how you ensure that your operations are renewably powered? Absolutely. So, I mean, that's that's the crux of, of scaling up a technology like this is making sure that we're building out and sourcing renewable or carbon-free electrons, I should say, for every project that we build. And so for our process, we're aiming to minimize the energy consumption to the extent possible. Most of the energy goes into the splitting of the water molecule. Part of that can be attributed to hydrogen production. And so basically part of that is for hydrogen production. Part of it is to actually make very concentrated acid base. And so overall, our process efficiency, the theoretical minimum, is about 
1.5 megawatt hours per ton of sulfuric acid, which is a chemical product that we make. Where we are today in terms of electrolysis performance efficiency at the acid concentrations we need to produce commercially is about four. And so there's a big gap there that we are you know, working really hard to innovate in and reduce energy consumption uh, in our process. That's great. And maybe for the audience, one thing that I've spent a lot of time trying to wrap my head around is how much a megawatt hour of energy truly is. And so just for context, I I might be able to take this one because I was just explaining it to my parents the other day, but a megawatt hour is about enough to power the average home for a month or so. And so just for context, that's the amount of energy we're looking at. Well, transitioning over to the sulfuric acid side of things, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but sulfuric acid, which is necessary for both fertilizer production and critical mineral mining, is the world's most used inorganic chemical. And so would you be able to talk about how it's currently made and what is the waste that's affiliated with that process? Yeah, great question. So this was something I didn't understand going into to developing Cavertine. I was learning from a number of lithium miners that they were planning to use very, very large quantities of sulfuric acid. And from there, I went down the rabbit hole. What is this? This commodity chemical that is ubiquitous in extractive industries. And so essentially conventional extractive industries produce sulfuric acid by taking elemental sulfur, or it's it's a yellow material, you've probably seen it before, you recognize it. That's actually a byproduct of crude oil refining. Back in the, I believe, 70s and 80s, they started regulating sulfur dioxide emissions to prevent acid rain. That meant we ended up with a lot more elemental sulfur being produced out of the oil and gas industry. And so the way the sulfuric acid is produced, the majority of it is produced by basically taking that elemental sulfur and burning it or oxidizing it to sulfur dioxide, and that's hydrated to make sulfuric acid. And so, yeah, so this mainstream process burns elemental sulfur, sulfur dioxide. Another common process called smelting, this is taking sulfide minerals and then converting those into what ends up being dirty sulfuric acid. Now, after extracting something with sulfuric acid, if the rock material ore is mostly neutralizing acid, then what you end up on the other side is sulfate-based. And the form of the waste can either be solid or an aqueous brine, depending on the composition of that waste. In the fertilizer industry, they're mostly producing solid calcium sulfate waste, but in other extractive processes, they may be producing highly soluble sodium sulfate or magnesium sulfate that may need to be crystallized. Got it. Well, that was pretty in-depth. And I'm curious, can you expand a bit on why sulfuric acid is necessary for extractive industries like mining or, on the other hand, fertilizer development? Like, what role does it play in these processes? That's a great question. So what is the chemical role of sulfuric acid in extraction? And this actually gets to the heart of why we're using it to sequester CO2, is that sulfuric acid is a strong acid that will break down minerals. And so it'll completely dissolve certain types of minerals, allowing you to pull out the elements that you're trying to extract. And so in the case of lithium extraction process, for example, you might dissolve a lithium-bearing silicate mineral and pull the lithium out of the brine. In the case of fertilizer production, we're going to start with the calcium phosphate rock, dissolve that, and produce 
phosphoric acid, which goes into fertilizer production. That's really interesting and really helpful to know that the, the role of sulfuric acid, in summary, it's a strong acid that will allow you to get exactly the mineral out that you specifically want. That's right. Awesome. Well, so for every ton of sulfuric acid that's produced by travertine, half of a ton of CO2 is sequestered. And so how long does this carbon mineralization process take and what does it look like in practice? Yeah, so our mineralization process is actually really fast. And so what our, our systems look like is basically sitting at the end of an extractor process, taking the waste from a critical element producer or miner, and then putting that into our, our fabricating process, which will basically look like a series of large agitated reactors, basically big tanks that are stirred. And so in these tanks, we're mixing the sulfate waste, and then we're mixing them with the carbonate solution that we produce by direct air capture. And that spontaneously forms solid carbonate minerals. And so the time scale of production of carbonate is very fast, the order of minutes to an hour, basically. So it's a super fast process that allows us to go end to end from carbon dioxide removal from the air and then permanent sequestration in a mineral. That's amazing. And in the lab, what's the size of these minerals that spontaneously are created in, in minutes? Is it like the size of a pebble? I'm just trying to visualize <laughs> what it looks like. Yeah, I know this is audio mostly, but essentially we end up with a powder okay. of carbonate minerals. So the, the minerals themselves are extremely fine. They're hundreds of microns in size. So you can look at them with a strong microscope, a skinny electron microscope, and see that the crystals, nice little uh, rhombic shapes, which is classical calcium carbonate shape. And those are, uh, the, the fact that it's powder, yeah, it's, it's useful in cement. That's really helpful just to have an idea of what this looks like in practice. I want to transition a little bit to the business side of things. And because of the multifaceted nature of travertine solution, you guys are dealing with not only chemical production, but also carbon sequestration. It seems like you must be involved with many different stakeholders. And so if I was thinking about running travertine, it seems like there would be so many different relationships you're trying to manage. So how do you prioritize what actions and interactions are most necessary for Travertine's growth? Absolutely. I mean, this is the the day-to-day challenge of of building a business is prioritizing your time and figuring out what's the quickest path to large-scale commercialization. So maybe I'll step back and say that the way that we envision this looking at a large scale is not lots of small plants necessarily, because most Users of sulfuric acid are using it in very large quantities that are significant in terms of their capacity to remove and sequester CO2 of their process. And so what we're working hard on is trying to build relationships, commercial relationships with the world's biggest producers and users of sulfuric acid. And at the same time, in parallel, working with organizations that are spearheading offtakes of carbon dioxide removal credits and voluntary markets. I can say that there's a very strong pull from the, the carbon credit purchase industry in the sense that there's a supply limitation of permanent carbon dioxide removal and mineralization suppliers at this point. In terms of sulfuric acid production, the pull from that industry is that it's actually difficult to manage 
the sulfate waste in some cases. And so in certain industries, there's a big incentive to look for alternative modes of sulfuric acid production, particularly recycling, that would eliminate that waste product. And so from day-to-day prioritization, if we're really trying to build relationships uh, and test test stocks from partners that are the world's largest producers and users of, of sulfuric acid. Really interesting, Dr. Lammers. And those world's biggest producers of sulfuric acid, are they here in the U.S.? And maybe regionally, where does that take place? And then where are they storing this waste currently? Yeah, so the biggest users of sulfuric acid are all over the world, but they're mostly concentrated in certain industrial sectors. And so about 60% of the global sulfuric acid market is going to production of phosphoric acid fertilizers. And in North America, we do have significant amounts of phosphoric acid production, both in the United States, mostly in Florida, but also in Wyoming, Idaho, and elsewhere. Uh, And then in, in Canada, there's quite a bit of production there as well. The biggest producers are actually overseas, though. Some of the biggest phosphoric acid plants in the world are actually Morocco, which is a country that is very resource-rich and has about 70% of the global reserves of phosphorus, at least that are documented today, although there was a major find recently in Norway, which was interesting. That's really interesting. And it seems like there's an opportunity to not only scale the business here in the United States, but by the the nature of where sulfuric acid is being produced, we'll be scaling it on a global level as well. And that might be a good segue to ask, can you talk a little bit more about your vision of what Travertine's path to monetization looks like and how your interactions have been with these potential customers? Absolutely. So our first major milestone on the path towards commercialization is going from our in-house integrated pilot system to a multi-ton per day pilot system. And our objective with that pilot is to make it a commercially viable standalone system. And so we're looking at potential sites where we could actually sell to apartments today paying a premium price for sulfuric acid because they're bringing in or buying in totes. And so we could sit at their site, produce sulfuric acid, recycle waste there as a stepping stone to large-scale commercial plants. And so in the meantime, we're, of course, also testing feedstocks from the major producers and users of sulfuric acid. Um, and the idea would be to, with them, work towards full commercial-scale plants, which would be million-ton per year sulfuric acid production or megaton per year carbon dioxide global mineralization. So those would be very large plants. There are sizes in between medium large systems that can be commercially viable as well but you know really to get into the large revenue region hundreds of millions of dollars revenue we need to be producing very large quantities of sulfuric acid and at the end of the day we want to be doing megaton hundreds of megatons to gigatons per year of carbon dioxide removal and mineralization which means we need to be targeting massive scale as quickly as possible anyway. And so we feel very driven to work with these large scale partners and scale up as quickly as we can with them. Really exciting, Dr. Lammers. And just to get an idea of what this timeline for all of these sorts of deployments look like, in your mind, what does the next 12 months look like for Travertine? And then what do you envision Travertine's next five years looking like? Yeah, so the next 12 months, we have, I think, mapped out pretty well. We are going to be running our system, our electrolysis system at a full scale electrolyzer cell, which would be 
completely modular from there, but it stacks. And so testing that system where you're testing the, basically the smallest commercially feasible DAC system. And then we are going to be working hard on engineering design for that multi-ton per day pilot and basically starting to construct it and work towards commissioning that pilot uh, or small plant within 18 months. And as from a five-year perspective, you know, I, I'm really focused at this point on trying to deploy a full commercial scale plant before 2030. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Again, we need to deploy commercially as quickly as possible just from a business perspective, but also a lot of kind of youth retail mandates kick in in the early 2030s that some of our partners are going to be subject to. And so they're interested in hitting those commercialization timelines as well. Really exciting. And if anything were to stop or slow down Travertine in pursuit of that goal of deploying a commercially scaled um, plant before 2030, what would it be? And then on the flip side of things, how will you overcome that challenge that you foresee? So the biggest challenge in the near term is just securing basically funding for that multi-ton per day system in a way that makes sense for our business. And so in an ideal world, we'd have a partner participate in building that system with us with an eye to scaling up to full scale with them. And so in terms of what are major hurdles for commercialization of large scale chemical processes, it's got to, at the end of the day, we need to make sure that we can actually source renewable electricity at the price we need to make our process economically viable. That's a huge, important part for us. And then just making sure our partners feel comfortable with our technology and eliminate scaling risk in their eyes. Really interesting. And that brought up a question, is the regulatory framework surrounding chemical production really strict? Like in renewable energy, for example, or CCUS, something that has been a big hurdle and sometimes land block for companies is just the permitting process. Do you foresee that being a major challenge as well? That is going to be a major challenge for certain applications here in the United States. And so in particular for taking what's called phosphogypsum waste, which is the calcium sulfate waste from fertilizer production in the U.S., and turning that into sulfuric acid and calcium carbonate. So in the U.S., it's very strictly regulated, and we have to apply for what's called a beneficial use permit from the EPA, which will take probably around a year to actually get that permit executed. And so that's a slowdown that we would like to avoid by either using feedstocks that would not be subject to this regulation or be working with partners overseas where the timelines for getting those permits through is shorter or faster. Makes sense for sure. And now zooming kind of out to a thousand feet and looking at your journey over the past two years since starting Travertine, what have you learned in the founding process? And as the leader of the company, are there any core values or principles that you want to institute to build the foundation for Travertine? I have learned so much. You know, that's something that I want to make sure is constant in my career is that every day I'm learning something new. Coming from academia, obviously you don't have explicit training in business development and commercialization, but I've learned a lot about how to take my ability to model things and kind of summarize complicated concepts and then translate that into building a business model, a financial plan, 
So I had to learn lingo there and also learn how to do business development. But in many ways, there are parallels to academia in the sense that you're running a research group, you're going to have to be funding your group um, and uh, writing grants. And so all of those skills are, are translatable, which is great. Now, in terms of our company's culture, Travertine, I love working here and we're building a team of folks that are really excellent in what they do, but also value holistically other aspects of their life. So I think we have a pretty good uh, balance here and, and also in our company culture, really explicit about being open to other ideas. And so this is one of the things that we established early on saying like, we want to be a company that is focused on respectful questioning, interrogation, no questions off limits, and everybody is invited to participate in innovation. And so that, that's kind of the company culture we're building. And I think it's been successful so far. The team is just a delight to work with. That's phenomenal. And I think that that discourse, that sort of challenging each other's ideas is fundamental to, to developing any sort of business, but especially a, a novel technology, you don't want people who are just yes men or yes women saying, oh, yeah, we'll do whatever Dr. Lammer say. Like, I think it's really important to have that sort of conversation and really honorable on your behalf as leader of the company to make that a, a forefront core value of how you're going to build Travertine's business. I don't think it's honorable. I think it's necessary. I think it's basically everyone brings their own expertise and, and I know that everyone has limitations and core expertise. So I, I want to bring the best out of everyone. Absolutely. Well, maybe honorable wasn't the, exactly the right word there, <laughs> but you're just spot on. And so after spending so many years in academia, you talked about that transition, that it was actually pretty fluid, but what made you decide to ultimately start the company and take something that you had been working on in research and in the lab for so long and decide to try to commercialize it? I think it was a confluence of factors, but maybe the biggest catalyst was watching my PhD students go out to the world and start getting jobs in removal companies and being at the forefront of that industry because it made me realize that for once, finally, that industry was there. And so that gave me the courage to kind of move away from a more known, kind of more comfortable situation into uncharted territory for me. You said you've learned a lot and, and are learning every single day, but I'm sure there's got to be some fun stories to share as well along that road. <laughs> I mean, it has been exciting. I mean, we started out just like any early startup, sitting at a card table in an empty warehouse <laughs> and with, you know, the first employee sitting there with me kind of grimacing over their iPad. But in a short period of time, a year and a half, I think we've made incredible progress. We've basically scaled up the system from where I started the lab at UC Berkeley by a factor of a thousand and are scaling up quickly from here. And so it's been really exciting. I think a lot of the aspects of academic job carry over here again. I mean, the writing grants, writing papers, presenting to people, right? lots of presentations. It's kind of like teaching and having also lots of different angles or facets to your job. As an academic, is not just a teacher, but an academic is a researcher, a teacher, a mentor, uh, an administrator. <laughs> And you might uh, like aspects of those uh, facets more or less, but all of them are important for execution of the mission. 
No doubt. And I think that's a great segue to this next question, which is one of the biggest audiences is college-aged individuals who want to get involved in slowing down global warming. And I feel like you're really uniquely positioned to answer this question because you've seen both sides. You've been on the academic side where you're mentoring students in the classroom, and now you're on, on the commercial side where you might be employing these fresh out of school students or offering opportunities in other ways. And so if you were someone who was about to enter the workforce with these motivations, where would you start? So I would start by basically taking a look at the industry landscape and and getting a sense of where your personal interests fit with the needs. From a global perspective, the way that we get out of this this giant mess we put ourselves in is to eliminate carbon emissions and then remove excess carbon that we've already injected into Earth systems. So that's about three trillion tons that's already there. And so there's there's a lot of different aspects to that. You know, goal number one, decarbonizing, right? So that means we need to do the renewable energy transition. So we need energy system engineers like yourself to come out and push forward renewable energy projects, we need people to make it cool and interesting to to be driving an electric car or not some kind of like eco-niche fringe thing, right? It may seem mainstream in a lot of the urban meccas that we live in, but a lot of the country, it's a little bit eye-popping when people drive through an electric vehicle, right? And so making all of these things just yeah, expected. That's great. Well, one last question then, Dr. Lammers. What is a fun fact not about Dr. Laura Lammers, the founder of Travertine Technologies, but about Dr. Laura Lammers, the person? I recently made my first loaf of homemade sourdough. (laughs) A little bit behind the curve here, but finally got to it. That's fantastic. Well, That concludes today's episode. I first want to say thank you to you, Dr. Lammers, founder and CEO of Travertine Technologies, Sourdough Baker. Travertine has the potential to transform the world through carbon capture and chemical upcycling. If you like this episode of Built for Earth, please subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social media at Built Number 4 Earth to stay up to date on startups with world-changing potential like Travertine. Until next time, this is Dr. Laura Lammers and Sam Beskin signing off. Thank you.